Welcome to episode 16 of a Northern Counties Paranormal podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. I'd like to apologise for the delay in getting this episode recorded. Work has been incredibly busy, so my normal research and recording time has mostly involved snoozing on the settee. So without further ado, let's get into it. In 1791 in the village of Raw, Northumberland, a murder took place. Margaret Crozier lived in a section of the old Peel Tower in the village, which she also ran a small drapery shop. She was elderly and often enjoyed visits from women in the village who checked on her from time to time. On the eve of the 29th of August 1791, Margaret had two visitors, Elizabeth Jackson, daughter of the local farmer, and Mary Temple, a local needleworker. As they departed from home, they both heard a couple of the local dogs barking ferociously from a nearby haystack, and both reminded Margaret to bolt her door before she retired to bed. Margaret laughed and said she had nothing to fear, and that it was likely that it was a skulking sweetheart of one of the local women. The next morning her neighbour, Barbara Drummond, arrived at the Peel to buy some goods, but Margaret was nowhere to be found in the shop. Barbara went on her way and came across Elizabeth Jackson who was talking to the local joiner, William Dodds, to whom she expressed her concern. William and Elizabeth headed swiftly to the Peel to investigate, and while they found the front door to be shut, it was not bolted. They entered, called for Margaret, and when she didn't answer, they began to look around, and found Margaret silent in bed. Approaching her, they realised that her throat had been cut, and they saw that one of her hands was also severely cut, as if she defended herself against her attacker. The bloodied knife was found in the bedclothes, and a plough coulter, which was a long knife set in front of the ploughshare, to cut a swathe before the plough was been drawn, was found outside of the door, and it was surmised that this was the tool that had been used to move the bolt and force entry. Further investigation revealed that the premises had also been robbed. The officers of Elson Parish offered a reward of £5 to be paid for the identification and subsequent conviction of the culprits. It soon came to light that the day before the murder, two local boys had noted three strangers loitering in the village near the Peel. When the strangers were spotted, the boys said that they were eating. The man was cutting mutton and bread for his two female companions with a knife that the boy said was the same type as the murder weapon. Afterwards, the man sung a song and one of the boys for some reason saw that he had hobnail boots on his outstretched feet. After the incident, the boys reported the strangers to the marshal and the coroner, and the description of the shoes appeared to match some tracks found outside Margaret Crozier's shop. The boys were then shown the murder weapon, which they said did just look like the knife the man had been using. The marshal then began asking around, and it became apparent that a few of the locals had seen the trio, and on the morning after the murder they had been seen accompanying a loaded ass at the nearby Harlow Hill. The man was described as nearly six feet tall, with long black hair tied in a club. He had a light-coloured coat, blue breeches and grey stockings. The two ladies were also tall and stout, and dressed in grey cloaks and black bonnets. The local constable set out in pursuit, and as they approached Harlow Hill they spotted the man wandering around some wind bushes and took him into custody without a fight. They then apprehended the first woman a couple of miles west of Ovingen. The man was identified as one William Winter, whose father and brother had been executed the previous year for robbery at Morpeth. The woman was Jane Clark of Headley Fell. Both were taken to Mitford for questioning and blood was found on Winter's clothing. Both were then committed to the county jail in Morpeth. The search continued for their accomplice, who was found eventually at Barley Moor in Tyndale. She was identified as Eleanor Clark and was arrested along with her mother. The three suspects were tried for murder at the Moot Hall in Newcastle-Pontine in August of 1792 and all three were sentenced to death, with the two women to be executed and then dissected 
and sent for medical study. Winter, however, was sentenced to be hung and then left on a gibbet near the place the murder took place. On hearing the sentence, one of the Clark sisters fainted, and it said that Winter stooped and picked her up as they were led from the hall back to the local prison at Castle Keep. On the 10th of August 1792, the prisoners were loaded into a cart and taken out of the town through the West Gate. Just outside the West Gate, a gallows had been erected. On the scaffold, the two women pleaded innocence, but Winter admitted the crime and all three were summarily hung till dead. The bodies of the Clark sisters were taken to the surgeon's hall, but Winter's body was loaded onto a cart and taken to Sten Cross near Harwood Head, where it was gibbeted in the clothing he wore as execution. His face was covered, iron straps bound his chest and limbs, with the iron frame attached to a swivel fastened to the short arm of the gibbet. The shaft of the gibbet was 30 foot tall and octagonally shaped. Winter's rotting corpse became a local spectacle. It is reported that it was visited by thousands, though as it rotted it was said the smell became so disgusting that it spooked horses on the road. The clothes rotted along with the body, and apparently as bits dropped off they were collected in a tarred sack and hung back up. Eventually though, the sacks themselves rotted and the local shepherds buried what was left in the land around the gibbet. Once the body had disintegrated completely, a wooden figure that purportedly looked like winter was hung in its place. This in turn also decayed and a second figure was hung. The gibbet had also taken on a new meaning in the area. According to the Reverend J.F. Big, rubbing chips from the gibbet on gums was used as a cure for toothache and pilgrimage from around the country were made to collect fragments of the allegedly magic wood. By the late 1850s, however, the original gibbet had either decayed or had been whittled to nothing and had to be replaced, though apparently the new gibbet had been set in the exact location of the old one. A wooden head was carved and placed on the replacement gibbet. Scroll forward a century. In 1987, the gibbet and the adjacent Sten Cross, which is a Saxon cross base, were granted Grade 2 listed status. And the following year saw the local press reporting that the carved head had been stolen. It was replaced and then stolen again in 1992, when a plaster cast of the new head carved after the first theft was then rehung by the National Trust. Soon after that, Winter's gibbet hit the press again, with reports of a gaunt grey ghost being seen at the gibbet and wandering the moors around it, said locally to be that of William Winter. One report described a woman driving home one night, and as she approached the area of the road next to the gibbet, a thick fog rolled over the moors, and the engine in her car stuttered and died. She rolled to a stop, got out of the car, opened the bonnet to have a look. Suddenly she heard a clanging noise, and shining a torch in the direction of the sound, the fog cleared to reveal the gibbet. At that moment the car whirred back to life, and she departed the area rapidly, describing the sensation as that of a malevolent gaze watching her depart. As well as a popular tourist destination, Winter's gibbet is also a favourite for paranormal investigators, though the Northumbrian weather can cut such visits short. <laughs> Today's From the Archive section comes from the Berwick Advertiser, dated Thursday 27th of July 1957, and is entitled, He Must Leave House and the Poltergeist. The father of ten children must leave his house at Embledon, which he says is haunted by poltergeists, because he is in arrears with his rent to the sum of £82. The eviction order was made against him at Annick Court on Monday. He is 44-year-old Mr Patrick Fellon, who has for the past two years rented Dunstanborough House from the RAF. They were given 28 days to leave the house. During their stay there, they have had nearly two years of belongings vanishing and then reappearing mysteriously, crockery spinning about the house and crashing at their feet, cushions and pillows flying round the room and hitting them, 
water squirting on their necks. Until February, Mr. Fellon was an acting sergeant in charge of sick at the RAF station at Boomer, with 13 years service at home and abroad. When he was discharged, he applied for a further period of service, but his application was turned down. Since he left the Air Force, he has been unemployed. Job hunting has become a major problem for any job he takes, must include accommodation for a family of 10 between the age of 15 years and 8 months. Today's folklore section was a County Durham custom in the 19th century, with the tale collected by William Brocky in his Legends and Superstitions of the County of Durham. The title is Breaking the Rainbow and reads, The children hereabouts cut the rainbow in two, or at least fancy they do so, by laying two straws on the ground in the form of a cross. Shortly after they have done so, the rainbow always falls asunder. The weather-wise call it a weather gall, when only a small piece at the end of the rainbow near the horizon is visible. It has its name evidently from its colour. Today's second story focuses on the dark tale of Featherstone Castle in Northumberland. Featherstone Castle is a Gothic-style 19th-century country house that can be found at Hall Bank near Holtwhistle in Northumberland and is a Grade 1 listed building. There is some discussion over the origins of the castle, with Historic England stating the 13th century when it was thought that there was a Hall House on the site, now incorporated into the western range of the castle. Newcastle University, however, places it into the 11th century, stating that there was a manor house on the site, though the first date mentioned in the research is in the 13th century, when in 1227 Robert de Ross of the Featherstone family inherited the estate. The southwestern tower dates to 1330, when Thomas de Featherstonehoff constructed it as a three-storey peel tower. In a 1541 survey, the site was described as a tower house in good repair. The tower itself was altered in the early 17th century on behalf of Sir William Howard, and then in 1711 was purchased by Matthew Featherstonehoff. The estate was then sold to James Wallace in the late 18th century. The rest of the castle, including the curtain wall and turrets, was constructed between 1812 and 1830 for Mr Thomas Wallace. In 1944, during the Second World War, a military camp was opened within the grounds of the castle to accommodate American soldiers. This was then converted into a prison of war camp holding Italian POWs and Nazi officers. The camp aimed to rehabilitate the Nazi officers, and a plaque of thanks was even installed in 1982 on behalf of the former inmates. The camp closed in 1948. Between 1950 and 1961, the castle became Hillbrow School, a boys' prep school. After this, it was converted into a private house with a residential activity and conference centre. Featherstone Castle, or Featherstonehoff Castle, as it was known in antiquity, is said to be the home of a large number of ghosts in the form of a spectral bridal party. Interestingly, trying to find the origins of the story isn't as simple as you'd think. First, though, we'll look at the story as told by William Brocky in 1886. Abigail Featherstonehoff, it seems, was a great beauty, who had bestowed her heart on a youth of slender fortune. The old baron set his face against such a mean match for his only daughter, and sought out for her to be her husband, a man of high degree and competent wealth, but of no great personal or other attractions. Her true love being banished from castle and hall, as the ballot runs, the wedding took place at the Baron's behest, 
and as soon as the ceremony was over, the marriage party, including the bride, the bride's ladies, the bridegroom, with numerous lords, sallied forth on horseback from the castle to perambulate its far-spreading lands by the brooms and the ramshaws and over Conewood Row till the banqueting hour should summon them home. Evening and night came, but the party had not come back. The minstrels were waiting the signal to strike up, and the menials were vexed to think the food would be spoiled, and the baron himself, pacing the hall with undefinable misgivings, dispatched one messenger after another to see what had become of the truants and hastened them in to dinner. The castle's deep bell tolled out midnight slow tone, but the dreary sound did not bring home the perambulators. The morning breeze at length arose, and here they are at last. The trampling of horses were heard. It grew nearer and more near. The party came in sight. They entered the avenue. They crossed the moat. They passed through the gateway. They moved into the hall and through the wide door at its nether end. First came the bridegroom, then came the bride, then followed the rest, taking seats on each side. But never a word broke the silence, and when the baron, the menials and the minstrels looked into the faces of the wedded pair and the wedding guests, they saw that the fresh ruddy gore streamed on the cheeks of all of them. The baron fainted as well he might. The eyes of the minstrels seemed changed into stone. The servants shrunk back in horror. A strong rushing wind swept the hall, and then Sir Albany and his people came to their senses and the company had departed. Search was of course made on the skirts of Conewood Row, and the dead bodies of the bride and bridegroom, bridesmen and bridesmaids, lord and ladies all, were found in a secluded dell called Pink and Clough, lying just as they had been slaughtered. Who were the murderers was never known, but who was the leader of them was shrewdly guessed. What became of the banished lover we cannot tell, but some say he committed suicide. At all events, the legend has it that, still from the rocks at Pink and Clough, the blood of the murderer flows anew, and that of the murderer drops alone into the pool beneath Ravenstone. Every year as the time comes round, the bridal throng may still be seen by those who have eyes to see such visions, wending their way to the old tower of Featherstonehoof. So the ghostly bridal party is said to still be seen at Pinkins Clough, or Pinkings Clough as it is now known, every year on the 17th of January. So where did the story find its origins? In 1802-1803, Walter Scott published three volumes named The Minstrelsy of the Scotch Border, which included in it the alleged ancient ballad of Featherstonehoff, describing a raid on the castle. However, it was soon became known that the origin of the ballad, historian Robert Surtees, had actually written it himself as a joke, that its contents had no basis in historical fact. However, it can be argued that the tale had inspiration, which was one element leading to the formation of the tale of the ghostly bridal party. Richardson's 1841 The Local Historian's Table Book notes that on the 24th of October 1530, Nicholas Featherstonehoff, gentleman, was murdered by William Ridley of Unthank, Hugh Ridley of Howden and others, while out in a hunting party. This is likely the source of the perambulation party murder. Next, in 1825, some farm labourers were working in a field near the castle, where they encountered what was first assumed to be the trunk of an oak tree buried in a swampy area of ground. They began to dig it up, but soon realised that the cut trunk was actually hollowed and had been used as a coffin. They exposed the bones, ran for help, but by the time they had returned, the bones had crumbled to dust. They then continued with their work and encountered another four such oak trunk coffins, one of which retained part of the skull. 
On a side note, while historically these bones were thought to be Bronze Age, a similar burial found in 1973 at Quernmore in Lancashire was dated via radiocarbon sampling to AD 430-970, to or the early medieval period, what a lot of folks still refer to wrongly as the Dark Ages. Other similar burials have been dated to between the Iron Age and Bronze Age, however, especially in the north of Britain and in Denmark. In this case though, no matter what the date of the burials, finding bodies that turned to dust I'd argue was likely to ignite the thoughts of ghosts in the local populace. Next we look at Pinkins Clough and the murderer's blood still running into the river. Looking at old mapping of the area, the telltale presence of a quarry still being worked by 1861 likely tells the story. It's quite a common thing for iron oxide to turn water red, pink or orange so it's easy to see how someone watching water trickling through the rocks from the side of the clough appearing to be running with blood. Potentially of further interest though, the 1861 map also shows the ruin of a witch's house, clearly labelled as such. I've not yet been able to shed any light on this, so if anyone does know anything, please get in touch. But I digress. So, so far we have a historical murder, a fictitious ballad, bodies being found that turned to dust, and blood, or shall I say iron oxide, dribbling from stones in Pinking's Clough. Mix these elements together with the rise of spiritualism in England and the borders, a hefty dose of imagination, and by the mid-19th century you have your tale of the ghostly bridal party. Blizzards and sub-zero temperatures aside, I am tempted to have a wander up the clough on the 17th of January, however. Interestingly enough, during researching this, I had a chat with a friend of mine, Gail, who had an account from friends about potential hauntings at the castle which she has given me permission to include here. A few weird things from Featherstone. I've personally never experienced anything there, and I've spent many an evening roaming the corridors of the castle on my own. We used to stay there for regular historical activities weekends. Some of my friends were doing an investigation in the gun room, and my friend Nick felt a pressure on his feet. Next thing he felt something grab his ankle, and he was pulled off the sofa by his ankle. He can't explain it. It was witnessed by other people. My friend Heidi was sleeping in the oldest part, I think it's called the tower but not 100% sure. She was alone in the room so went to sleep with her torch on as she was nervous. She woke up in the middle of the night and the torch which was on her bedside table started spinning around in a circular motion. She can't explain why. Also my kids were sleeping in the top room on that side and one woke up to see a woman walk through the room and disappear. Thanks for listening to episode 16, I hope you enjoyed it. Now with this weekend marking the autumn equinox, we're now officially, in my head anyway, heading well and truly into spooky season. So if you have any stories you'd like to share, or have any requests on any topics you want me to cover, please do get in touch. If you want any more information on Within the Boggart Wood, including contact links, Patreon and social media, please visit the main website at theboggartwood.uk. Until next time, have a good weekend and stay safe.